Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for Episode 7. In this episode, we are going to be listening to Stephen Grant's afternoon teaching session at Langstaff on the Sunday of the Christian Fellowship Weekend. Stephen Grant continued with his theme of love by considering 1 Corinthians 13. This message should be listened to in the context of the Christian Fellowship Weekend series. turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for our text. And what I want to do is I want to read with you in the first uh, three verses of this chapter, and then uh, later on this afternoon we'll deal with other parts of the chapter. So for context, we're going to read the last verse of chapter 12, which is connected with chapter 13 and then come into these verses. So verse 31 of chapter 12 says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now that's our text. And we'll continue um, the reading and uh, the exposition down the passage later on. But I want to just introduce this subject really and see what Paul is speaking about here in this context. And it's often pointed out that in the context of 1 Corinthians, this chapter is the oil that keeps the engine running, the engine of spiritual gifts. So in chapter 12, you have the bestowal of spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 14, you have the implementation of those gifts um, within particularly an assembly context. And in chapter 13, then the kind of meat in the sandwich you have the essential attitude and component and demeanor and characteristic of people as they exercise their spiritual gifts. And so what he does is he gives us an exposition of love, a definition of love. And he's going to explain to us the importance, first of all, of love before he defines it. And sometimes, although when you look at the English language, it looks as if he's going to use 15 adjectives, it's actually 15 verbs Um, that he will use to define love because love is something that is active and not passive. But before he gets to that, he will speak about the importance of love and tell us that really any amount of proper theology is is no, no substitute for love. Any amount of activism and service that we can render is no substitute for the necessity and importance of love. Immaturity or ignorance is no excuse or substitute for love or for the lack of it. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9, which I've quoted before um, this weekend, that you don't need to be taught about love, he says, because God has taught you this very thing. Mentioned Romans 5, 5, the other uh, session, 
And the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given unto us. And so God is love, and we could have turned to 1 John in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and seen the absolute essential necessity of love being manifested amongst us as his people. You cannot claim to be in relationship with God if you do not know, love, and express love. You just can't. So we come to this verse, this immediate context, and we'll unpack this as we go down. And in verse 31, which I say really is connected with chapter 13, he says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, I know we're into the afternoon, so the brains are beginning to get active. And so um, I'm going to ask you to kind of... I was going to say, if you were children, I'd be saying, sit up and uh, fold your arms and pay attention, but I won't patronize you like that. Um, but, but you get the idea. And so what I'm going to do is explain a wee bit of grammar. I love grammar. I live with the grammar police because my wife is a teacher. And so uh, my son's a teacher, my daughter's a teacher. So uh, grammar is a stick with which I am beaten often. So uh, I'm going to give you a bit of uh, grammar, and it is the difference between the indicative and the imperative. So don't panic about that. It's not that complicated, really. So rather than me try and explain that to you, I'll read to you a definition which will be helpful. So in the Greek language, New Testament Greek language, there is an indicative. What does that mean? It's a statement of fact. That's the indicative. The imperative is a command. Now, in the form of New Testament Greek, there's no difference. And so when you read it, you discover this, you cannot tell by the language itself, which it is. The context determines which it is. That's not such a foreign concept, and I'm not going to go away down an alley here, but in English language, it can often be the same. We just are so used to our English language, we do it instinctively, but that is often the case in the English language. So, in the Greek, this verse, verse number 31, is either a command or a statement. It's either an indicative or it is an imperative, and the context determines which. So, it could read two ways. It could read as a command, covet earnestly the best gift, something that you need to do that you are not otherwise doing. Or it can read as the indicative. You are coveting the best, i.e. the showy type of gifts. The gifts that you consider to be the best are the ones which you are coveting. These are both legitimate um, ways to express the language. I think that the second, in context, is the correct one. This is not an instruction to do something. This is a comment about something that is being done. So he says, you're coveting the showy gifts. Now, we know that from the rest of the epistle. It fits the context. They came behind in no gift. They loved the gifts of the tongues. They loved the gifts which were flamboyant and extravagant and very visible. They gave great priority to them. But there were things that they gave no priority to that he wanted to put to the top of the agenda and it wasn't even on the agenda. 
So he's not diminishing the necessity in that historical context of these gifts. He's not diminishing their value and their place. But rather this, he's saying there is something more important than the gifts that you are coveting and focusing on and pursuing and valuing has been the most important thing. He says there's something more important. So he says, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So he's saying, that's what you're up to. I want to tell you a better way. That's chapter 13. He gives them an exposition of love. And he shows the supremacy of love. He shows the necessity of love. Love is not secondary. It's not um, the kind of B division or second division, whatever you say here in your sports. It's not that it's been relegated down there and it's all touchy-feely and it means that you do stuff in, in a loving way, which is just, you can either do it that way or not. This is an essential component of Christianity. Without it, the gifts don't work. It's like you don't put the oil in the engine. The mechanics are all there, but you turn the engine on with no oil and it's going to seize. And it will take you nowhere. You start to exercise your spiritual gifts and there's no love. The local body is going to seize up and there'll be no fruit for God. That's the point. That's the context in which he's speaking. So he says, you need to, you need a a more excellent way, which is, by the way, after he's given an exposition of love and explained what he means by it, you come to chapter 14 and verse 1. So chapter 13 could be a parenthesis, i.e. stick brackets round it and read it this way. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way, chapter 14, verse 1, follow after love. So chapter 13 is a definition of love. Chapter 14 is an instruction to follow it. That's your structure. And the basic idea is what I've said. That the truly spiritual life is the only life in which spiritual gifts can function as they are given. The truly spiritual life is not a life dominated or controlled by the gifts of the Spirit, but rather by the fruit of the Spirit. Now that is a very important statement. We sometimes think that the fruitfulness of our life is determined by the gift we have and its exercise. It's not. It is determined by the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in our life. That is the key component for fruitfulness for God. So let's come to this now. That's the context set. Let's look at the three verses. He says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and obviously I'm reading from the King James, so that word has changed its meaning, which is that have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling symbol which actually, although the language is old, I like the language. It's onomatopoeic. It is, you can hear it as the words come out. You know exactly what he's talking about. So this word charity, which actually in context, if the word had retained its original meaning is the accurate word, 
but it's changed because language changes. This word love is the agape love. It's the love associated with God that I've spoken about so much. It's love of the will. It's the love that can be commanded. It's not the love of the affection which is responsive. It's the love of decisive action. I've mentioned that the Greeks had different words for love. They had words phileo and eros and so on. And it's interesting, by the way, when you come to... This is just a wee thing for husbands. When um, you come to Ephesians chapter 5, the husbands are all looking very nervous. When you come to Ephesians chapter 5 and it says, Husbands, love your wives. It might be some comfort to you that he's not talking about romantically there. That's just a wee get-out clause at Valentine's Day and stuff like that. He's not actually talking about romantic love there. He's talking about something much harder than that. He's talking about sacrificial love. So this isn't the, this isn't the kind of... I'm not going to get into it. You know what I mean. Okay, so this, this is probably going to come back to haunt me. So this is the self-sacrificial love. This is the agape love. It's interesting, isn't it, that in this section when he speaks about love, that he's going to teach us, and we'll see elsewhere if we've time, that unity amongst us as Christians is never maintained by agreement. Never. It is always maintained by love. Because love is far superior than agreement. Love can be displayed and enjoyed and manifested where there is no agreement. And agreement is less than love. Because agape love allows me to sacrifice my opinion. For the sake of that individual. Now note my careful use of word, my opinion, for the sake of that individual. We've seen mentioned examples of love. John 13, the Lord Jesus uh, gives us this tremendous example in the chapter of John 13. Um, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And then, of course, the chapter runs on and tells us this. Because in verse number four, you remember he washes his disciples' feet. He's, he's, he's graphically showing them what he meant. And he'll teach them a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. How did you exactly love us while you washed our feet? That's the new commandment. Now, there was always a commandment in Scripture to love each other, but there was never a commandment to love like Christ, because this love had never been seen on earth. This love was perfect, agape, pure, holy love for his own. And he said, look, what you've seen in me has never been seen before. That's the standard of love that you need to exercise to each other. It's a new commandment. It's a new standard. And so these Corinthians were not theologically ignorant. They could debate doctrine with you till the cows came home. They, They would not be left looking stupid when it came to the detail of God's word. They didn't lack that. They came behind in no gift. They could dazzle you with their spiritual gifts. 
There were so many of them, they were bouncing about in their assembly gatherings, trying to get a word in edgeways. They would just seem to be, they just seemed to be bursting at the seams with all this kind of gift. And what they lacked was not gift, for they came behind in no gift, but they certainly came behind in love, big time. Therein lay the problem. The core problem. The Lord raises it to the Ephesian assembly. By the way, that's the assembly to which Paul would write the deepest of theological truth in relation to the, to the mystery of the church. I mean, you read Ephesians and you go deep quick in that epistle. And it's amazing the truth that's conveyed within those chapters. And that assembly receives it and Paul has the confidence to write it. And you get to the Lord's letter to Ephesus in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And he says, I have somewhat against thee. Not that you've left your doctrine, not that you've left the truth that you've been given in relation to the church and the body and so forth and the middle wall of partition gone and Jew and Gentile in one. He says, no, you you may still have all that stuff and it's good and it's right and it's true. But where's your love for Christ? Where's your love for Christ? You've left it. And so he's going to speak about the supremacy of love. First of all, in verse number one, he'll speak about language without love. Language without love. Though I speak with the tongues, language of men and of angels, and have not charity love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Language without love. What is this? Now, of course, when you read chapter 14 and verse 18, you discover this, that Paul could speak in tongues. He had that gift. He says it explicitly. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So this is a gift that Paul possessed. He's saying here, though I speak, referring to himself, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, speaking with tongues or languages, If you take the word tongue and change it to the word language, it's helpful in the interpretation um, when it comes to um, tongues. It's the word language. That's what the word means. So though I speak with the languages of men or of angels. Now, people get very excited about this, but when you go back, you know, to where all the excitement about speaking tongues comes from, which is back into Acts chapter 2 in our New Testament context, it tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other languages, tongues, languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance because everyone heard them in their own language. And in that day of Pentecost, which I don't have time to speak about, do you remember the Spirit comes? John 16, the Lord says, I'm going and I'm going to send another comforter. If I don't go, he can't come. And so the Spirit of God is coming. Go back to Jerusalem. Don't go home. Stay in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And they did it. By the way, the first corporate gathering of the saints in the New Testament is a prayer meeting. That's a whole other series. But it's a prayer meeting. It's the first thing they did. And by the way, they never stopped doing it. Right through the book of Acts. It was, the, it was the meeting that they gathered together for, above all meetings. They did all the other things, but you know, you just read about them all the time. And they're praying. That, I can't go in a tangent, but you know, Paul's, he's, he's, kneeling in the, he's kneeling in the seashore with the Ephesian elders. And then the whole assembly um, in the next chapter come out to see him off. And they're all there and they're praying. And you know, Peter's needing out of prison, so they pray for it. It's just all the time they're praying. 
Okay, so you stay there in the upper room, and what happens in the day of Pentecost, if you read it carefully, Jack Hunter used to say, and then read it more carefully, and then read it more carefully, you discover this, that um, as they were gathered, there was a sound that came, came and filled the room. There was no wind in the room. And people have this picture of, you know, hair all at right angles, and, you know, there's a typhoon going on in the room. There was no wind in the room. There was a sound in the room, and the sound filled the room. And the sound was as of a rushing mighty wind. That's the sound, no wind. And the sound was symbolic of the presence of the Spirit of God. John 3 teaches us this. The Lord taught Nicodemus that. The wind bloweth where it listeth, uh, and that's a picture of the Spirit of God. So the presence of the Spirit is, is known by the sound that, in, that absolutely what immersed them all. We're back to our word baptism. So they were baptized in the Spirit. They were immersed in the presence of the Spirit of God as a singular body, a representative body of the Church of Christ, immersed, baptized. That's why Paul, when he writes in chapter 12 of Corinthians, said that we were, have, we were past tense, baptized into one body. That happened at Pentecost. It's never happened again. And so the baptism of the, the Spirit's a historical event. And in Acts chapter 2, what happens then is the individual gift is given because there appears above the head of each individual in that room, there appeared tongues as of fire. Fire, again, a symbol of the Spirit of God. You remember the refining fire and so on. And there is a tongue, symbol of what? The gift that's been given. Now, it's not a corporate gift, it's an individual gift. It doesn't sit over the whole company. They're not all immersed in a tongue, bizarre, but rather there's a tongue above every head. So they've all got the gift here. And then they go out and they manifest it and they use it because they all begin to exercise the gift of what? It's a linguistic miracle. It's a miracle of language. The Lord, the, the Apostle Paul is speaking about that gift, which, by the way, is then exercised in the early church and is a sign to Israel. There's a whole thing about this. And it was effective as the communication of the gospel and the authentication of its truth, remembering you're moving from an Old Testament, which was of God, to a New Testament, which is also of God, and they need to be sure that the transition is of God. So here's the evidence. Here's the signs in keeping with the Old Testament scripture. So Paul says this, though I speak with the tongues of men, that's what he's talking about, that linguistic miracle, the gift of it. He says, and though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. The people say, okay, so if I'm gibbering on and talking uh, with sounds that are not formulated into a recognizable language, that's the language of angels. Now that's interesting. Because nowhere in the Bible do angels speak in a language other than by human language. Nowhere else. So when angels speak in the Bible, it's in language that's understandable. This is hyperbole. This is, you, need, you see this so often in Paul's letters. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a literary device that he uses in argument. It is the device of exaggeration, which many of us use frequently. But it's the, it's the exaggerating to make the point. 
So he says, if I speak with tongues, and he say, he's basically saying, I can do that. But if I could even speak with the tongues of angels, he says, if you can think of a, a, a linguistic ability or gift that, that transcends whatever you could think about, the best type of linguistic miracle you can imagine. If I can see the Corinthians sitting up and saying, I'll have a bit of that, thank you very much. I would love to be able to speak like that. That would be the best. And he brings them crashing down. Okay, say you could do all of that. And you have not love. What is that? What is that? He said it's like sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Now that's not just empty noise. That was symbolic because in the worship of pagan gods, there was ecstatic languages like we see in the extremity of the charismatic movement. The ecstatic language accompanied by the clanging cymbals, the smashing gongs, and the blaring trumpets. It was all part of the package. So he says, if you are talking in tongues and using a linguistic gift, miracle, and you don't have love, it's no different from what you hear the pagans doing. Whoa. Hold on a minute. Paul, are you actually saying that without love, the exercise of my spiritual gift has no spiritual significance. Yes. Yes. That's what he says. It's absolutely meaningless. Secondly, prophecy without love. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. Now in chapter 14, prophecy is seen as one of, the, one of these great gifts. And you think of the God-given ability to speak before someone, which is what a prophet did. Please don't think that a prophet always was used by God to reveal truth that otherwise hadn't been revealed. Prophets actually rarely did that. More often than not, they brought existing revelation to bear upon the people in a challenging fashion. Bringing the people to account in light of divine revelation, speaking for God, the proclamation of divine truth in the language of the people. Yes, there was new truth revealed through prophets. Of course there were. But often it was the restating of already revealed truth and you get this in Ephesians 4, verse 15. Paul says, speaking the truth in love. In love. So this gift of revelatory prophecy is not around today, neither is the gift of tongues. But if I was to exercise a spiritual gift like now, to speak to you, and bring the challenge of already revealed truth to bear upon the people of God. And there is no love in my heart for you. Then he says this. I can have the gift of prophecy. And all knowledge and all faith, etc., etc., etc. He says, I am nothing. I am nothing. Knowledge without prophecy, without love. Knowledge without love. He says, understand all mysteries. That term's used over 30 times in the scripture. Something hidden in the past now revealed. 
the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ in us, the mystery of Jew and Gentile, the mystery of iniquity, and so forth and so on. And what he's saying is just this, that you can know everything there is to know. So, so you can have the gift of prophecy, which is communicating divine truth. And you can, maybe not have the gift of prophecy, but you can know everything. All knowledge. Understand all mysteries. And you can have all faith. I think that's the gift of faith. And so he's speaking about that which actually releases divine power in the individual. Releases divine power in the individual. Some people have this gift and they have the ability to walk in such a way with God in faith that many of us don't have. To do extraordinary things for God. He says, okay, you have prophecy without love. You have knowledge without love. You have faith without love. Then he says this, in verse number three, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, you have generosity without love. So that you are very, very orientated toward charitable giving. And then he goes on. And though you give your body to be burned, you're even prepared to be a martyr for Christ. You see, he's gone through the full thing. Every gift, every level of understanding of divine truth, every aspect of service rendered, every charitable deed every kindness shown. He takes the summation of all the stuff that we think we are and do. And he says this. If you have no love, at the end of verse 2, he says, you are nothing. And at the end of verse 3, he says, it profits you nothing. It doesn't say it profits nothing. I saw you just stand out there, still do. And supposing I come in and um, I want to participate in that, and so I come. Let me just give you a crude example. And I come with things to give for that particular um, work. And uh, I have no love in my heart for the recipients of that. And I am doing it for all the wrong reasons. I'm doing it to be seen. Or for whatever reason. The people who receive the goods benefit. There is profit in the act. It is profitable to the recipients. But it is not profitable to the participant. To the giver. It's a crucial point. And so God is able to use what you do. 
God will work out his purpose and bring blessing to those he will bring blessing to and your heart can be like stone and you can be in all the wrong place and for all the wrong reasons and that's why people say, I don't know why there was so much blessing there when you discover that there was so little love. That's because it profits the individual nothing. The individual is nothing. But God is able to do what he will do. It's not to say that there will be no profit. But it is to say that you will not profit. And perhaps for many of us, if not most of us, that's the more devastating point. Because perhaps we would be happy enough if it profited us and didn't profit anyone else. (laughs) So then, He's going to explain, now I'll deal with this uh, later on. He's going to explain what this love is that he says is so vital for the Christian. He's going to explain that it is extremely demanding. And it is a very high standard. But you and I, first of all, because this is what Paul does before he gets to that, he wants to absolutely wipe away the preconceived notions that if I am doing the right thing and God is blessing it, all is well. That's not true. That's not enough. The truth of the matter is that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ with me And when you get to chapter 3 of this epistle, he speaks of that judgment seat in the context of the local assembly and the things that you have built into that assembly. Volume is never mentioned. It is the character of the material, not the amount of it. And so he says, unless you are building in gold, silver, precious stones, the building blocks of the temple, not jewels, unless you are building in gold, silver, precious stones, what will happen is this, that the fire of divine assessment will fall upon it. And if it is wood, hay, and stubble, it will be burned up and you'll be left with scrub. The question is, what is the character of what I build into this assembly. Is it gold, silver, precious stones? Is it motivated and characterized by love? Because if not, it's going to be burned. You'll be left standing empty-handed. Now that, to me, is a frightening thought. That I could spend a whole lifetime doing but not being. And it means absolutely nothing in that day. Then you come to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it speaks about the judgment seat of Christ again. And there it says that the issue at stake is not what you build into the local assembly. The issue at stake is the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So now it's me as an individual. And the life choices I make with this body that God has given me. 
So I'm going to have to give an account for that. And then thirdly, in Romans chapter 14, the issue of the judgment seat of Christ appears again. And this time it is between, it is to do with relationships between Christians. It's the context of the weak and the strong. So the issue which I will need to answer for, and so will you, is how you conducted yourself in relationship with other Christians. You're not going to be asked about the ones you agreed with. That's not Romans 14. The issue is, how did you get on with the people you didn't agree with? That's the issue. That's the weak and strong. That's how did we, how, how were we in relationship with people that our consciences were calibrated at different stages of spiritual experience? That um, we're not all in the same place in life's journey or spiritual growth. We all have consciences that are calibrated by our understanding of divine truth and by our experience of life and our upbringing and all the rest of it. And he's saying, look, he said, um, how you behave towards these other believers, you're going to have to give an account for. You say, is there there anything else that I could give an account for? What about what? And Sorry, that's it. That's it. In Scripture, that's all that's mentioned. Three things. What you built into your local assembly, how you conducted yourself in relation to your body, and how you behaved toward Christians that you didn't agree with. Stunning, isn't it? How accurate and up-to-date it is. Because these are the litmus points. These are the... Um, these are the kind of hot points of life for a Christian. They're the litmus test of where we are spiritually. And so he says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, and I have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Let me summarize it in this way. It doesn't matter what spiritual gift you and I possess. It doesn't matter how eloquent you may be. It doesn't matter what you know, neither does it matter who you know. It doesn't matter what you believe, and it doesn't matter what you give. Without love, none of that matters. Now, that is a radical truth that's being taught here. Love is essential. Because without love, I am nothing. And all of that will be of no benefit to me. It might benefit other people, but it won't benefit me. Let me give you an equation. Life minus love equals zero. That's the equation. Life minus love equals zero. Trust that God would challenge us in that. Let's just pray. Our Father, we bow in thy presence and we confess to thee that the truth of Scripture is very demanding. It searches us, it convicts us, it shames us. And we readily confess that to thee, that we do need 
to hear thy voice in these matters because we are carnal very often and we lapse into our fleshly behavior of pride and of uh, self-righteousness and we tend to retreat into familiar sin. Father, preserve us, we pray. We ask thee, O God, that we might not only accept but that we might actually practice the supremacy of love amongst us as thy people. And so, our Father, we just ask for thy blessing, we pray for thy blessing, and do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.